Hey, everyone. It is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, talking to you uh, just a couple days after this happened. That is the sound of a jubilant crowd witnessing the lowering of the Confederate battle flag on the South Carolina State House grounds. One of many such deflaggings going on around the South, and not just in official venues, mind you, but all over the place. For instance, you can no longer buy a Stars and Bars bikini or beer koozie at Walmart or Amazon. They have destocked all their Confederate flag merchandise. That is how far things have gone, my friends. Well, this seems like a good time uh, to ask ourselves not why all this is happening now, but why it didn't happen a lot sooner. I mean, it has been 150 years since the Confederate Army waved the white flag, so why in tarnation has the battle flag continued to wave all this time? Well, here is an idea, and it comes from my guest today on the show, the historian David Blight. He has long contended that though the Civil War formally ceased in 1865, the fighting never stopped. I mean, the fighting over the issues at the heart of the war and over the meaning of the war itself. David Blight has made that case many times in books like Race and Reunion, The Civil War in American Memory, and he made it again this past spring. As the country was marking the sesquicentennial of the Civil War's end, David was there reminding us that maybe that use of the word end, uh, a little bit premature. Well, it is one thing for a historian to put forth some ideas, and quite another for events to rise up and make the point themselves in ways so dramatic and traumatic that hardly anyone could miss the message. I spoke to David Blight about the past two months and the past 150 years. Uh, you know, on I think it was April 8th, you published an article in The Atlantic called The Civil War Isn't Over. Right. And a week or so later, you were standing alongside of uh, Reverend Clementa Pinckney at a commemoration uh, of the uh, what some people call the first Memorial Day yeah. uh, that happened in Charleston 150 years ago. And then, of course, uh, you know, not long after that, the shootings in Charleston that killed uh, Reverend Pinckney and eight others yeah. uh, on June 17th. So it, you as a historian who has long made the claim that we are still fighting mm-hmm. the Civil War in some ways, what's been going on for you? It's been a bizarre but fascinating month. To me, it's a classic case of something I've always believed as a historian, and more and more and more it seems true to me. That is that, first of all, historians should never predict anything because we're always wrong. But secondly, what really moves history or brings about change in rather sudden and almost always unpredictable ways are events. If you would have told me and and any other 20 historians of this subject one month ago that there would be a political circumstance somehow that that caused the Confederate flag to be now so denigrated and uh, politically untenable that it would be coming down, we'd have been shocked. Uh, But still, I I have to confess, I don't have answers yet Mm. to why it is in the United States in 2015 after 150 years of our process of trying to get
get over that civil war. Why? A mass murder in a black church by a 21-year-old kid can make us move and do some things we otherwise could not do. Um, David, when I was young, I was into the Civil War, like a lot of kids. I read a lot of books. I wasn't a real scholar, but I found it fascinating and cool. And I just remember all the books ending with Appomattox, you know? Uh They shook hands. (laughs) That was that. Oh, yeah. And it really surprised me. Of course, I grew up in the North, but it really surprised me to learn later on that the Confederate battle flag was still flying high uh, across the South, and that uh, people still talked about the South shall rise again, and damn Yankees, and uh, the war of Northern aggression, or the war between the states as opposed to the Civil War, and all of this that stuff that you have written about uh, a kind of alternative version yeah. of the Civil War. How did that come about uh, when the victory seemed complete? I mean, there were formal surrenders, right? There were, yeah, yeah. The shooting war ended, and. Spring of 1865, there were actually four surrenders. The Confederacy was, in every legitimate way, defeated. You could say it was one of the most complete endings of a war in modern history, not unlike World War II. However, the great issues of that war, and they are the most profound issues of American history. What is an American? How do you end slavery? And if you do end slavery, who and what are the four million slaves now? Can black people be citizens? If so, how much of a citizen? Uh, if they will have any rights, what rights? The great issues of Reconstruction were these kinds of questions. Questions like, okay, who is going to rule in the South? Would Reconstruction be a long process in the South remade? Or to be a quick, short process, just get reunion done, get them back into the nation and into the union, and let race relations just alone. Let them sort themselves out? Let them sort themselves out, let the South take care of itself. And the greatest question of all, of course, was, what were the dimensions of black freedom? The war had ended slavery. That, too, was a certainty. That's why the 13th Amendment was passed outlawing slavery. The the first of the three great Civil War Reconstruction Amendments outlawed slavery and voluntary servitude. But there was much to come in the Constitution and in law to give meaning to that, and that's why we have a 14th Amendment and then a 15th Amendment. Uh, In fact, the 14th Amendment is the most important thing in the Constitution, Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. We're going to have that anniversary next year, and that's as important as anything else. In in short, establishing full citizenship for everybody who's... Birthright citizenship. Born Anyone born in, and equal protection before law. Right. Uh, The most important, and one might say pregnant, phrase in the entire Constitution. Uh, It's had a million different uses and interpretations. But the problem, in part, was you had this all-out war fought for the nation's existence and for the South's attempt to preserve and create a slaveholder's republic. That's what the Confederacy was. If the Confederacy wins that war, wins some version of victory, they were establishing in the 19th century a slaveholder's republic, a slaveholding nation that they believed or hoped could last forever. And it had a good chance, certainly, of lasting the rest of that century and into into the 20th. They were destroyed. That was ended. But what do you do with those states? 
what happens to those 11 states? They had to be put back into the Union. They, they weren't going to go anywhere. Some ex-Confederates, you know, exiled themselves to Brazil or to England or to the Caribbean <laughs> and other places, Mexico. But the states couldn't go anywhere. There's still going to be a Georgia. There's still going to be a South Carolina. What's it going to be? These were unprecedented problems. And this is why uh, almost all historians now refer to the Civil War and Reconstruction as a second American revolution. This was a revolution now. And yet, I don't know if it's changed, but like when you read most of the books about the Civil War, they stop there. They don't go into Reconstruction. And I think, yeah, maybe I'm wrong, but uh, it seems like most Americans, if you asked them what was Reconstruction, wouldn't even have an answer. You're absolutely right. It's one of the biggest pet peeves of my career. And uh, now we're going to have commemorations of Reconstruction in the coming several years. Oh, wow. Well, they will never be what the commemorations were of the war because there's not the popular interest. But it's true. The year of Reconstruction, uh, roughly a decade, decade and a half, is a black hole of understanding for so many Americans. Our problems with the memory of all this are more about the memory of Reconstruction than they are the memory of the Civil War, because whenever there's a major revolution, certainly history shows us this, and that is there's always a counter-revolution. And the White South, through the revival of the Democratic Party, through terrorist organizations like the Ku Klux Klan and many other imitators, in the late 1860s and into the 1870s, conducted an ultimately successful counter-revolution against the regimes of Reconstruction that were established in the South. Was the, the goal of Reconstruction, David, if we can talk about it as one thing and not many, and not overcomplicate the conversation, yeah. was, the, was the real goal, in good faith, to bring black Americans into complete and total equality. Was that the goal? Well, no. A total equality in the 19th century always meant to people social equality. And there were some radical Republicans uh, who were in favor of uh, as complete racial equality as, as they were even capable of imagining. But for most Americans, uh, it was kind of thus far and no farther, particularly when they passed the 15th Amendment and gave the right to vote. But social equality, meaning including such things as interracial marriage and of completely integrated schooling, completely integrated facilities and access throughout society, no, that was never the primary goal of Reconstruction. But the leaders of Reconstruction imagined a remaking of the American South. And it meant delivering some degree of civil rights to free labor, to contract, and access to public facility, and at least the right to vote for black males. Fifteenth Amendment only gave the right to vote to black men. Mm -hmm. So, no, the, the notions of equality in the 19th century are not what they became for us in the late 20th and early 21st century. So Reconstruction, at its most uh, progressive, was pretty radical for the time. But oh, it, absolutely. It certainly wasn't uh, what we, we would consider a complete program of equality. But the idea then, uh, at least among those who were in good faith, and I'm sure there were many who weren't, uh, right. was to bring 
black people into uh, a position with some political power and uh, and yeah. rights. And that was all completely undone when the South revolted. Was it a lack of will and a lack of genuine backing from the people in the North? Was it a pragmatic decision based on pacifying what was a rather large part of the country that could have risen up again? I'm going to have to play a story on you and say yes and no. I mean, first of all, it was accomplished to a great degree in many places. I mean, you know, over 400 blacks got elected to office. In Reconstruction governments in the South during Reconstruction, uh, there was even one black lieutenant governor. There were three black congressmen and so on. So this was established. There was even some land redistribution regimes in some states. But the counter-revolution against it was so forceful. And, as you just suggested, the will to sustain this in the North just wasn't there. There are a lot of reasons for that, racism being one of them. But also, this is important, the United States experienced a major economic downturn in 1873. In the 19th century, they called them panics. Uh, The panic of 1873 was really an economic depression. And it hit, and in some parts of the country, it lasted more than a decade. And there was huge unemployment. Uh, The attention of northerners shifted to their own economic suffering. And the so-called Southern question or the race problem, you know, it was always called either one of those two, was no longer um, paramount. And the Republican Party itself, the party invented in 1854, the Lex Lincoln that emancipated the slaves and won the Civil War that conducted Reconstruction, that brought about the constitutional amendments by the 1870s, that party itself is really changing into a party that's more and more, not overnight, but more and more about the interest of business, anti-labor, and uh, about tariffs and uh, economic uh, prosperity and expansion. And so it's in that process, you know, there's never in, well, never one cause of anything in history, but it's in this process that the South got back control, what they called redemption, got back control of not only their state governments through the 1870s, but particularly of race relations. Now, the Jim Crow system is still going to be another decade or two before it takes hold, but the ground is all set for the southern states by the 1890s in particular. 1890 is a turning point year. That's the first actual disfranchisement law passed by a southern state. It was Mississippi, where just by outright legislation, they denied blacks the right to vote and got away with it. And from 1890 up through about 1910, over the next 20 years, the entire system of Jim Crow laws, uh, an American apartheid is really what it was, uh, was fully put in place all across the South, and everything in Southern life got segregated, including uh, medicines and blood and hospitals and textbooks and storage. I know you're a historian, you're not a policymaker, but you must have thought of this, a lot about this. Um, how could it have been done right uh, <laughs> against the resistance of the majority population, the whites of the South, Is there a way it could have succeeded? Well, given the outcomes, the answer is, of course, no, because it 
didn't happen. And we are supposed to deal with real outcomes. However, uh, one of the reasons, obviously, we do history is to try to understand those moments, those turning points, those times when decisions are made that might have been made otherwise. What it would have taken to solidify and protect what was created during Reconstruction would have been a, a longer, more aggressive occupation of the South. There was an occupation of the South, make no mistake, military occupation, uh, especially for about five years, but that's not that long. The Freedmen's Bureau, for example, this agency, this unprecedented agency that was created uh, just before the war ended, the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, as it was formerly called, was all about the idea of providing for the freed people, for white refugees, create schools, create hospitals, and so on and so forth. This massive social welfare organization necessitated by the Civil War's devastation and by emancipation. The Freedmen's Bureau was an amazing attempt at creating a new society of some kind of equality. It only lasted four years. The truth is, it was a society with almost no experience at using government on this scale to reshape society. And this is where also the Supreme Court becomes so important, because the Supreme Court made numerous deeply conservative decisions from 1873 on that, in effect, overturned the great achievements of Reconstruction, overturned the first Civil Rights Act, and in effect that was passed in 1866 and eventually overturned in part the 14th Amendment, although that will get revived in the 1950s and 1960s, and indeed was revived just a week and a half ago when the Supreme Court used the 14th Amendment, at least Justice Kennedy did, to argue that uh, gay people have a right to marriage. No 14th Amendment, no constitutional gay marriage. People ought to know that. It might get people interested in the 14th Amendment, which yeah. is great. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go back and research it myself. Um, so so what might have been uh, an era of great racial progress in America was rolled back, and we entered, I, I would say, you know, a dark age for a very long time. Yeah. And and it wasn't just the South. I think, you're, as you're indicating, with some Supreme Court decisions and certainly complicity of people in the North, we were dragged back into something— that uh, was quite horrible for black people in this country. It was, although, you know, they did what all peoples do. They forged economies of their own, communities of their own, churches of their own, institutions of their own, even within segregation, not unlike blacks in South Africa. But it was a system that uh, the 20th century eventually overwhelmed. And, in fact, World War II overwhelmed it. Mm-hmm. I was um, talking to uh, Tony Horowitz last week. Do you know oh, Tony? Oh, I know him very well. You do, good, yeah. Good friend, smart uh, guy. And I was reading, rereading his book, uh, Confederates in the Attic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great book. Uh, it is. And, uh, it's both comedy and tragedy. It oh. is, it is, <laughs> it is, yeah. And I think he mentioned that uh, the 4th of July wasn't, uh, I don't know if it wasn't officially celebrated or it wasn't just sort of generally celebrated in Mississippi until after World War II. It was World War II. Yeah, it's sort of a long time. Made people feel like they were part of the same country because they'd fought a common enemy overseas. Right. It happened some with World War One. Yeah. But you're right, especially after World War II. And that's where this current issue of the Confederate flag you know, needs a history. It has a deep, deep, 
long history in the ways in which white Southerners developed their own stories, developed their own narrative, uh, sometimes referred to as the lost cause tradition. And that's what's at stake here. You know, when, when, you, when you watch people get up and defend the Confederate flag as heritage, and, and it's just it's about their ancestors and their family, I mean, they mean that. I mean, I'm not saying they're all lying. They're not lying in most cases. But they're telling a story they've, they've been told, and they've told themselves, and they've told generation after generation that that flag represents a benign, legitimate effort by their ancestors to simply defend their homeland. That's not all the Confederacy was. And I know that for some, they say it only represents their great-great-grandfather's valor or his sacrifice. And they have a point when they talk about numbers. I mean, there are counties in the South, you know, where 50% of the white men were dead in the war. I mean, that's a huge, huge sacrifice that Southerners experienced. But this is always this, this issue of wanting to separate individual motive and individual valor and individual experience from the larger meaning. The Confederacy existed to preserve slavery and destroy the United States. That's what it did. Well, now you're touching on the other thing I really wanted to talk about, which is memory and how memory gets managed or manipulated sometimes. Uh, you wrote in that article in The Atlantic, The Civil War is Not Over. I'm going to quote, uh, In America, as much as it sometimes astonishes foreigners, the defeated in this civil war eventually came to control large elements of the event's meaning, legacies, and policy implications, a reality racked with irony and driven by the nation's persistent racism. Um, we talked about policies. Let's talk about meaning and legacies. Yeah. You know, some of that, I imagine, just happens organically. You know, people have bitter memories. They want to revise them. Uh, they don't want to think their ancestors died in vain for a terrible cause. But there's more to it than that? There was some systematic reframing of the war? Oh, there was indeed. Um, systematic reframing of, of narrative and of story is what, is, is what memory is really all about. Historical memory is always about the present. It's always an argument about controlling power and policy in the present by using the past. And society as a whole found that they could only have a new kind of unity and a new kind of power by reconciling this most divisive, most destructive event in their past. And one of the ways you can rally, if that's the right term, and create unity is by stressing the mutual valor of soldiers, the uh, glory and heroism on both sides in the war, such that when you get to the famous 50th anniversary Blue-Gray reunion at Gettysburg in 1913, I wrote about in the book Race and Reunion. It's an amazing event. 53, 54,000 veterans of the war. In fact, any veteran in the United States who could manage to get there, and their average age was about 74, had his way paid by train. They built a gigantic tent city. And they held this uh, reunion of the blue and the gray. And you know they reenacted uh, or tried to reenact you know, part of Pickett's charge, and they took all those incredible 
photographs of the stone walls, and they built this huge tent uh, where Woodrow Wilson, the first Southern-born president since the war, comes on the actual anniversary, July 3rd, and delivers a speech uh, to the assembled veterans in this gigantic tent in which he declared, uh, that is, after walking in, uh, flanked by the governor of Virginia and the governor of Pennsylvania, both of them Civil War veterans, one carrying a Confederate flag, one carrying a U.S. flag, and he goes to the platform and he, in classic Wilson-esque eloquence, declared the Civil War our quarrel forgotten. That didn't mean that every veteran in that audience, you know, was ready to shake the hand of every guy from the other side. Uh, but in the in the visuals, as we would call it today, in the optics and in the press coverage, it was this enormous celebration of national reunion, national unity, a quarrel forgotten. But what wasn't always so obvious, although it was obvious. <laughs> was that it was an entirely Jim Crow reunion. Yeah. Black veterans were not invited. There were some who actually showed up anyway, but they weren't invited. The black press picked up on it. I mean, that's, I wrote about this again in my book. I mean, they, 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 they wrote about this reunion as though it was a denigration of their own experience and a, and a, you know, a defeat for what the war had been about. And they wondered, indeed, if the nation had forgotten who had actually won the war. But you got to remember, that's 1913, and this is the age of segregation. This is the age of incredible numbers of lynchings, bitter, violent race relations uh, across the country, not just in the South. So, you know, it, it was a culture of reunion and a culture of sectional reconciliation much bigger uh, than any one blue-gray reunion. It's a culture by then created by novelists and poets and political rhetoric, to say the least, and rituals of all kinds, and you know everything that goes into forging collective memory, which, of course, includes schooling. Are, are you saying, David, then, that the white folks in the North and the white folks in the South were willing to let bygones be bygones, and the Northerners were quite willing to let Southerners have their version, which was, we're honorable people just fighting for states' rights or whatever, together essentially excluding black people from the conversation and black history from any discussion whatsoever. I would never use the word all in any of that, but the answer is sufficient numbers, yes, of white Northerners bought into the culture and the arguments of the lost cause tradition. Now, that's a key point, and I'm glad you asked, because this idea of the lost cause tradition uh, is important to understand. It had developed right after the war and then you know, into the 1870s as a, as a whole set of arguments uh, kind of looking for a history. This was the whole set of ideas like, you know, the South had never fought for slavery, they only fought for home and hearth. Uh, Lee was a great Christian warrior and leader who did not fight for slavery. And, you know, they were just exercising their proper sovereign rights and so forth and so on. And, and in the end, were only defeated, as Lee said in his farewell address, by superior numbers and resources. 
therefore mm-hmm. not really defeated on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. However, over time, that lost cause tradition became a story that wasn't about loss at all. By the 1890s and turn of the 20th century, the lost cause advocates, and there are zillions of them in the South, including women's organizations, they're not telling a story about loss at all. They're telling a story of victory, and the victory is the victory over Reconstruction. And they portray it eventually as a national victory over the terrible mistake of Reconstruction, the terrible mistake of you know, creating black suffrage and bringing about any kind of black equality. It's the victory for the country itself in allowing the white South to take back control of its racial destiny. It's that victory narrative that is at the heart of the lost cause tradition by the time they hold that blue-gray reunion in Mm. Gettysburg. It isn't just the white northerners are are saying, eh, we forgive you. Forgive, forget, come on back. It's, It's not that simple. They've begun to buy into the idea of uh, black denigration, black uh, uh, inferiority, uh, uh, the danger of black men to white women, and so on and so on. And they're now all buttressed, if they choose to be, by the racial sciences, by eugenics, and uh, hideous stuff coming out of universities arguing that you know, the races need to be kept separate uh, for social safety and security. And they even get an ally in Hollywood with D.W. Griffith. They get an incredible ally with that, as everyone says, first great silent motion picture, Birth of a Nation was seen by millions. Birth of a Nation is the lost cause as victory narrative on steroids. So here's a question then. Memory gets constructed and reconstructed, no pun intended, through a lot of means. I mean, it it can be people consciously colluding to revise history or or, or to accurately represent history. It can be popular entertainment that just plays to good box office, right? Uh, It can be all kinds of things, wishful thinking of all kinds. Is there a way a society can actually step in and make sure it gets done right? Or is that a kind of, ooh, is that kind of totalitarian to mess with people's memories in a well, programmatic way? Well, always the issue, isn't it? Yeah. We just experienced it again this past year uh, with the college board exams. Oh, golly, and I should say that I just read an article, you may have read it too, a couple days ago in the Washington Post, quote, Texas officials, schools should teach that slavery was a side issue to the Civil War. This is about the textbooks that are being rolled out in uh, the Texas uh, public school system, which plays down I was trying uh, not to be depressed today. (laughs) Send me that link. I better better check it out. Well, but, you know, yeah, and Texas is only one of the states where the new standards or guidelines for uh, the college board exams in history were attacked because uh, members of the right wing and state legislatures believe they weren't sufficiently uh, telling the story of American exceptionalism and triumphalism and so forth and so on. Um, So on the one hand, it's easy for me to sit here and say, how in the world can we let a bunch of state legislators decide uh, what history our children should learn? Why can't we leave that to historians? But on the other hand, I also know that they don't trust us. Not at all. (laughs) Uh, They think the uh, academic historians are all... uh, liberal, uh, 
cartel, to use a certain Texas senator's favorite word. They think we're a conspiracy, you know, to radicalize young people, which is absurd, but that's what they believe. So, yeah, you put your finger on something here. Historical memory does not evolve out of uh, this little group or that little group necessarily forcing it in one direction or another. Uh, It does evolve organically, especially in a society where opinion is generally, you know, a pretty free thing. Um, It doesn't mean that there aren't moments. I mean, give you an example. Uh, With Civil War memory in the 1880s, only 20 years out after the war, one of the major magazines in New York, Century Magazine, devoted its page, and it was a huge, popular uh, magazine in this golden age of magazines. They devoted their pages almost exclusively for three years to what became known as the Battles and Leaders of the Civil War series. It was the forerunner of every Time Life and Look magazine, Life magazine, special history of this or special history of that to come. It was a monster bestseller. They hired illustrators and artists. It was a brilliant creation for three years, and then eventually it was sold as a set of books. And you can still buy it uh, to this day. Well, what they did, and I wrote all this up in Race and Reunion, but what they did is the editors of Century decided they were going to use the pages of their magazine for the purpose of national reunion and sectional reconciliation. They invited only the highest-ranking officers, surviving officers of the war, on both sides. They told the story from, here's your point again, from Fort Sumter to Appomattox. There was virtually nothing on the causes, and there was certainly nothing on Reconstruction. It was a kind of epic retelling of the experience, you know, the human experience of that war, 20 years out, by the men of the highest rank who survived it. And they told their authors explicitly that they were not to address any partisan issue, that they were not to address what the war was about, but simply to narrate their experience. So there's an example of, you know, a certain kind of power being used, power of publishing, to shape memory. On the other hand, you know, there there are a thousand other uh, more vernacular, more popular, more ordinary ways that memory gets shaped as well, uh, like ritual, like uh, burial experiences, like Memorial Day, and like popular fiction, literature, and cartooning, and eventually, of course, film. Uh, And eventually, uh, one could argue that our popular culture may have as much to do with shaping historical memories fortunately or unfortunately, than anything else. And for a long time, our popular culture was incredibly racist. The black stereotypes are just, uh, you know, unavoidable everywhere. What's ultimately at stake in how memory is forged is the politics of memory. It's about, you know, who gets to control the narrative, the story. And that's why the right wing in America now, let's, let's be frank about it, that's why they're upset that's why they're worried about textbooks. They're worried about those historians and, you know, Ivy League universities who are going to uh, ruin their kids uh, by teaching them that America has had as many problems as any other country. 
Um, you know, they want us to stop emphasizing slavery so much and, you know, and emphasize more uh, great triumphal moments, uh, great inventions, victories, and so forth. Well, uh, that should be there, too. You know, we, we can do the moon landing and we can do Indian removal. Mm. They both have to be there. I think for a lot of people, the Civil War may feel impossibly ancient. How does it feel for you as someone who's really studied it? How long ago does it feel to you? Oh, like this morning and 150 years ago. I mean, it's both. There are times when it does feel like the pastness of the past, another era, another time, another kind of technology, another system of thinking, mores that were very different from ours. Uh, but the big issues of the Civil War, many of them are still with us, especially racial issues and profoundly the problem of federalism, the relationship of the states to the federal government. Look at every Supreme Court decision. We live in a time when the basic overall issues of the Civil War are still with us, still alive, we're still fighting over them, and we probably always will. No end in sight? Well, you know, there's certainly no end in sight to our struggle over federalism. It's inherent to the Constitution. It's right there forever. We have checks and balances and separation of powers. And we have the Tenth Amendment and we have the Fifth Amendment and we have, you know, we have, we have rights uh, that the states do control. And now we have an enormous history of uh, federal supremacy, despite the fact that there are many Republicans that don't believe in that history or don't seem to know what happened. Um, and on racial issues, every time you think we've turned a major corner, I mean, just look at the last six years. For good reason, in 2008, when Barack Obama was in, or 2009, when he was inaugurated president, you know, it was a fundamental turning point in our history. There's just no way around it. A black man had become president. And there were millions of us who thought, you know, that's just, you know, how many times did you hear? You know, I never lived, never believed I'd live to see it, and so on and so on. And yet the reaction to him, and I'm not defending everything he's done, but the reaction to him, the racial reaction to him, has been profound. Whether it's the Tea Party we're talking about, or just basic Republican congressional obstinance to any kind of policy or action he's tried to do, on down to this most recent mass murder. Every time we think we've made tremendous strides with uh, racial understanding, racial equality, racial egalitarianism, both in life and in law, we realize that it always causes a reaction. And that's what to watch now in the wake of Charleston. We don't know where this is going. The Confederate flag may come down. It may come off emblems. There may be other Confederate symbols that decline in their salience across the South and across the country. But that had already been happening to a degree. The better thing to watch is whether this moment, this kind of uh, urge now, this aching for racial understanding and healing. We hear the word healing and forgiveness all the time right now. Where is this going politically? Where is it going in terms of any policies, especially policies about voting rights, about incarceration, about immigration, 
and a host of other issues that are fundamentally racial issues in the United States. If we get new debates about those policies, then Charleston will historically be a true turning point. If not, then it'll be an interesting symbolic turning point and not much else. As you wrote in that uh, April article in The Atlantic, American society seems to surge forward one moment and then in the next sink back. Yeah. But, you know, that is the way history happens. I mean, we, we, we want history to be a, a kind of stairway that's or escalator that's always somehow going up. Yeah, or that, that arc of history that bends toward justice. history that justice. bends toward justice, Obama's favorite line. Yeah, but... but he, and he's president. He needs to say that. Right, you know, right. That's his job. Right. <laughs> uh, it, it, but it's, you know, tell the Russians that. Tell the Germans that. Tell, tell the Croats that. I mean, it, it depends on where you are. Arcs of history uh, go up, go down, and go sideways, and uh, it depends on where you are. Mm. Well, David, I'm, I'm going to try not to get my hopes up. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I didn't want to do that. <laughs> I really want to thank you for this time. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Uh, same here, Robert, and I hope we can do it again. David Blight is a professor of American history at Yale University. And by the way, uh, when I was uh, asking David the very first question in that interview, I think I got one fact wrong. I said that he had attended an event with Reverend Clementa Pinckney commemorating uh, the 150th anniversary of the first Memorial Day. I think actually the event was commemorating the 150th anniversary of the end of the Civil War on the grounds where uh, what some have called the first Memorial Day had taken place back in 1865. Well, next up, uh, another conversation about these same subjects with the Pulitzer Prize-winning writer who David and I talked about there briefly in our interview, Tony Horwitz. You heard us mention his book, Confederates in the Attic, Dispatches from the Unfinished Civil War. It came out uh, almost 20 years ago and was a bestseller and described Tony's uh, travels through the American South, exploring the ways in which people uh, both remember and misremember the Civil War. And I was reminded of the book again uh, just recently when Tony came out with an article on TalkingPointsMemo.com entitled, How the South Lost the War But Won the Narrative. Well, I got in touch with him, and uh, I started by telling him a story that I heard a little over 10 years ago from a guy who I just sort of ran into and who turned out to be a Civil War reenactor, part of a Confederate troop. And he told me about something that had happened that day to him and his uh, comrades. Uh, He had just that afternoon been over in San Jose, California, where he and some members of his unit were practicing in a public park. And they were confronted by um, some African-Americans who I believe uh, lived in the neighborhood who started shouting at them, uh, and uh, things got rather heated. I don't know if threats were exchanged, but at some point he said his commanding officer, a former U.S. Marine, was about to issue orders to fix bayonets. Their muskets didn't fire live ammunition, obviously, but they had real bayonets. Uh, Thankfully, it didn't come to that. Uh, Somehow things de-escalated. But he was still shaking his head, and he was saying, they just don't understand. Black people fought for the South, too. This isn't about race. Good grief. In San Jose? um, That story uh, wouldn't shock me if it had happened in Alabama or Chicago, but uh, San Jose, that's surprising. Um, Black Confederates is a key part of really this mythology um, that the Civil War was not about slavery. 
Uh, it began a long time ago, but it's, it's had a huge revival in recent decades, this notion that uh, legions of blacks uh, fought you know, voluntarily for the Confederacy, and therefore uh, the war wasn't about slavery. It was about defending our homeland, our way of life, our, our rights. Um, but I think any historian worth their salt will tell you there is virtually no basis for this belief. Thousands of blacks did indeed accompany southern armies as slaves. Uh, they were cooks, they dug ditches, they did menial labor, and there may have been a tiny handful of instances where African Americans uh, picked up a rifle in the heat of battle or in some way, but the evidence for it is slight to none. But I can't get that image out of my head. White men dressed as Confederate soldiers, potentially with real bayonets, brandishing them at modern-day African Americans in the 21st century. I think it speaks to how resonant and inflammatory this war and its memory uh, still are. The issues at stake in this war, race in particular, are obviously still with us. You once donned a Confederate uniform or I shouldn't say once, several times, right, as part of, yes. a, as part of research uh, for your book, Confederates in the Attic, Dispatches from the Unfinished Civil War, published back in, what, 1998? 1998. Um, and you joined some Confederate reenactors uh, on the field of battle, as well right. as uh, camping and doing some of the other stuff they did. Um, how did it feel to be in that role? Well, first of all, I was a, a complete Klutz and what reenactors call a farb, which is probably short for far be it from authentic. I was not a um, convincing reenactor in any sense. I was interested in trying to understand reenacting from the inside and met this very colorful, hardcore troop of Confederates that I tagged along with on a, several occasions. Um, at first, for me, it was really research and also just play acting. I really did learn a lot from it about how they felt about what they were doing and also to some degree about the clothing and food and experience of Civil War soldiers. Um, it was only when I was outside the um, setting of a Civil War reenactment or an encampment that I realized that I felt very wrong about doing this. I remember going into a a shop on the drive home once in Virginia in my Confederate uniform and stopping at a 7-Eleven for a coffee and African-American customers uh, staring at me with uh, what I sensed was hostility. And, you know, at that moment I paused and said, you know, this isn't play acting. This whole history is very sensitive and you have to be extremely careful about what settings in which you, uh, you use it. You make the point in the book that reenactors, there are a lot of them out there. There were 40,000 when you were writing. I don't know if it's grown since then. But they're not just playing around. They are, in some sense, the preservers of certain kinds of public memory. And one of the interesting things about them that you wrote is that by far more people want to be Confederates than want to be Union soldiers. Right. I, I think we have to be careful uh, not to paint everyone with the same brush, whether it's reenactors or people who are interested in Confederate heritage. There are certainly groups out there and individuals 
who, in my view, are, are racist and are using these symbols for present-day political reasons and for agendas of their own. Uh, there's others whose interest is genuinely uh, historical or genealogical. And what you mentioned about the popularity of the Confederacy at reenactments, I think, speaks to how this isn't just a Southern thing. It's really a national story. Uh, thanks to Gone with the Wind in particular, this mythology of uh, romantic antebellum plantation life and the Confederates who went off bravely to defend their homeland uh, really spread not just across the nation, across the world. And to a great degree, that's still the prevailing image of the Civil War, that this was a, a, a sort of noble defense of southern homeland and rights. And I think that's reflected in the fact that so many more people, whether they're from the South or not, want to be Confederates at reenactment. Does that sort of disassociation of the romantic idea of valor and defending one's homeland against all odds, against authority, all that stuff, and the real issues that were at stake, like slavery, first and foremost, did that disassociation also exist at the time of the Civil War? I mean, a lot of, maybe most, Southern soldiers didn't own slaves, right? Right. And they didn't really have, a, you know, a kind of financial stake in slavery. You know, I think we, again, have to separate, at times, the soldier from the cause. Uh, when we talk about the Vietnam War, we understand that, you know, not everyone who fought over there felt what we were doing was a great thing. In the Civil War, it's hard to generalize about the millions who served, but on the southern side, first of all, many of them were drafted. The Civil War led to a draft north and south. They didn't go willingly, and about 75% of them did not own slaves. Um, but I think we have to be really careful about that because southern society as a whole, whether you personally own slaves or not, was very much structured around white supremacy and slaveholding. And it's also important to remember that these soldiers, for the most part, were in their late teens and early 20s. They weren't old enough, in most cases, to own slaves themselves, which were very valuable commodities. Slaves were really the uh, kind of ticket almost to upward mobility in the white South in those days. So just because they didn't own slaves doesn't mean that they didn't support the system and aspire to owning slaves uh, one day. Ah, uh, interesting point. One of the other sort of defenses or apologias for the, oh, I don't know, Civil War, well, let's see, what's a good word for it, Tony? I don't want to say neo-confederacy because that's a little more ideological. Oh, Southern, reverence for Southern heritage. I yeah, mean, yeah. Neutral way to put it. There yeah. you go. One of the other descriptions, uh, you know, was put really nicely in your book by the um, novelist and Civil War historian Shelby Foote. He said, even though he was by no means pro-slavery or any of that, that he himself, despite, you know, his political leanings, would have probably fought for the South because it was a matter of honor. And it was honor over principle. The same supposedly was true of Robert E. Lee, right? Yeah, I mean, Shelby Foote was, uh, in many ways, a very old-school Southerner who um, understood some of these ancient notions, really, of, of honor and sticking with your people. 
that. And I think uh, that was certainly a factor. But Lee, to me, is part of this whole lost cause mythology. For some reason, we remember him today as a gentleman and his uh, main antagonist, Grant, as a mere butcher, even though Lee was effectively a traitor, inherited a very large number of slaves, did not free them as called for in his father-in-law's will. He was very much a supporter of the Southern system, even though he understood in his heart that it was wrong and that it was damaging to people. I think we have to take an honest look at at Lee, along with uh, other figures that, to me, get a bit of a pass. Yeah, and your use of the words, um, I think you said, fighting for his people, is striking to me, because in order to feel that way, you have to sort of classify those many black people you live with as something other than people. No one says it better than the secessionists themselves. When each state uh, left the Union, they wrote about their causes for doing so. And these statements are very frank acknowledgement that they're leaving the Union um, because of slavery. They see the North as a, a threat to their institution. Uh, they make, you know, baldly white supremacist pro-slavery statements. Slavery is the greatest interest in the world. It will last forever. Africans are inferior. That's their place as slaves. Uh, it was really not until after the Civil War that former Confederates crafted this fiction, really, that the war was about something else. You tell some interesting stories about visiting uh, some groups during your multi-year tour through the South when you were writing this book, uh, Confederates in the Attic, some groups who really do keep the flame alive, this you know revised version of the Civil War, groups like the Daughters of the Confederacy and uh, uh, an affiliated group called Children of the Confederacy. You visited sort of a, I guess, a ceremony of theirs. Where the, right. where the kids sang Dixie and then recited what they call the catechism? It's literally called a Confederate catechism. It's as if you're in church, and kids get up and are quizzed about the contents of this catechism and recite verbatim the basic tenets of the Lost Cause mythology, that the war was not about slavery, that Lee was a a great gentleman overwhelmed by the North's uh, greater numbers and industrial might, uh, and so on. And these groups still exist, and the United Daughters of the Confederacy put up most of the monuments you see around the South. So they've always been a a key group here. But I think uh, the demographics, among other things, have changed to the degree that a much smaller percentage of people living in the South today have any ancestral or other link to the Confederacy. And I think that's a big part of the change we're seeing today. Uh, That's interesting, because 20 years ago, when you were writing your book, um, you wrote that, quote, roughly half of modern-day white Southerners descended from Confederates, and one in four Southern men of military age died in the war, which means that, you know, a huge number of people Uh, have an ancestor who died in the war, and then many, many more have ancestors who were 
wounded, maimed, etc., affected psychologically. And, and it all took place, as Shelby Foote pointed out, in their backyard. So it took place in their family tree, and it took place on their land, you know. So right. there, there's good reason to have, you know, strong memories. But the kind of propagandized version that you just talked about uh, uh, with the, say, Daughters of the Confederacy or the Children of the Confederacy. By the way, I want to uh, quote a line from that catechism. What was the feeling of the slaves toward their masters? The answer is they were faithful and devoted and were always ready and willing to serve them. Anyway, uh, just how powerful is the role of these, what sounds like kind of fringy groups, uh, in uh, maintaining this sanitized version of the war? Um, again, I, I think we have to be careful about um, uh, lumping all these heritage organizations together. The United Daughters of the Confederacy today might not be your cup of tea, but they're mainly interested in history, genealogy, tending graves. They're not a, a, a political movement. There are other groups like the League of the South or Defenders of the Southern Cross that are pushing an explicitly uh, kind of neo-Confederate, veiled racist, and sometimes not very veiled racist uh, ideology. I think the way in which these groups were most effective in, in perpetuating the existence or public display of uh, Confederate symbols uh, was through political lobbying. So you have uh, groups in South Carolina that were doing much what the NRA uh, has always done with guns. Um, they demanded absolute fidelity from conservative lawmakers and would punish any, anyone who strayed from the Confederate orthodoxy. And they really uh, held lawmakers hostage. And as a result of the uh, tragedy in Charleston a few weeks ago, lawmakers finally had an opening to stand up to the kind of bullies of the heritage lobby and say, you know, it's, it's time to take that flag down. And the speed with which that spread across the South and to other symbols to me, shows how overdue this, uh, this step was. Do you sense in the, in the current willingness to reconsider the flag, uh, you know, among public officials and uh, prominent people across the South, sort of a sense of relief, like maybe we can finally let go of this? African Americans and white liberals and some others have wanted this change for a long time. I think what's changed has been the uh, white conservative portion that uh, was reluctant to go this way. And I think now that they have on the official level, there is just tremendous relief. This is an embarrassment to them. It's a stain on the region's reputation. Uh, it's a distraction from perhaps, you know, more serious issues. And I think in most cases, officials in particular are very happy to try and, and put this issue uh, behind them. On the other hand, there are a lot of people, some of whom you wrote about in your book, some of whom you, you got to know, even to like in some ways, mm -hmm. who've attached themselves to the symbol of the flag Maybe, you know, with a subtext of racism or maybe just denialism, but primarily as a kind of emblem of defiance, of self-determination, of resistance against status quo and resistance against all kinds of things that have made their lives unhappy. 
There are complaints in your book about Southerners being mocked and treated as fools by the, the public in the North. And, the, and they're right about that, by the way. You look at sure. depictions of Southerners in, in movies uh, and TV shows from Gomer Pyle to Deliverance to uh, Django Unchained, you know, they are stupid barbarians, right? I, I, I think uh, Southern resentment of, um, uh, of Northerners and the way they've been treated in film and because of their accents really did bolster support for the flag for decades. In a way, it was a symbol of, of Southernness, of uh, defiance, of, in some cases, good old boyism. I don't sense that younger Southerners or younger residents of the South, because so many people in the South today are from somewhere else, feel that resentment as deeply as earlier generations. Uh, A much more uh, confident region, a much more diverse region, particularly in the cities, that I think you don't have uh, nearly as many people who, who cling to the flag as that, yeah, symbol of defiant, angry southernness aside from everything else. You wrote an article recently for Talking Points Memo, or TPM as it's sometimes known. Uh, It was published online, entitled How the South Lost the War but Won the Narrative. And you ended by saying, quote-unquote, I'm not very optimistic that the debate over South Carolina's flag will bring a deeper reckoning. Furling the statehouse flag may bring temporary relief to South Carolinians, but what we truly need to bury is the gauzy fiction that the antebellum South was in any way benign, or that slavery and white supremacy weren't the cornerstone of the Confederacy. Only then, perhaps, will we be able to say that the murdered in Charleston didn't die in vain, and that the lost cause at last is well and truly lost. Do you still feel that way, that that the symbolic removal of the flag in a few places isn't really what this should be about? Yeah, I absolutely feel we need to go beyond the symbolism and uh, the easy steps of uh, taking down a, a flag at a state house uh, to talking, you know, frankly and uncomfortably about uh, the causes and legacy of the Civil War. I have been encouraged uh, since I wrote that piece by the depth of the discussion. And now across the South, town by town, city by city, county by county, you're having these debates. Is it appropriate to have a Johnny Reb uh, on our courthouse square where I have to go to do my civic business with an inscription saying, you know, he fought for the purest cause there ever was? So I think we are actually now seeing much more of a, a true conversation than I thought was possible even 10 days ago. Events have moved that quickly. So I think we really are seeing a a very dramatic and sincere re-examination of the Civil War. So 20 years after you took your tour of the South and met a lot of people who uh, identified with the Confederacy on some level and with the flag, uh, if you went back today and revisited those same places, you think it would be really different? The people I met 20 years ago and the movements I encountered, they're still out there. I just think that they are a much smaller percentage of Southerners and a less significant voice in the Southern conversation, and particularly after the last two weeks' events. I suspect (laughs) many of them are kind of crouching in their bunkers, bewildered, 
and uh, perhaps uh, rethinking some of these issues themselves. It's not that this will go away uh, entirely, and nor do I think it should. I think it's important that we keep this history and this historical debate alive. Let's not just sweep it all under the carpet in this rush to um, take down symbols. You are a third-generation Civil War buff, and not because you come from Civil War stock yourself. I mean, you are the descendant of Jewish immigrants who came in the late uh, 19th century, didn't have a dog in the fight, but still your grandfather and your father, both deeply interested in the Civil War, and then you growing up also. Um, There's a moment near the beginning of the book we've been talking about, Confederates in the Attic, Dispatches from the Unfinished Civil War, where you meet a guy, I think it was in a cafe or a restaurant, his name was James Connor, a black man, as you were beginning your tour of the South, and he asked you a couple of questions, one of which was, how do you fit into the big picture? And your book is in part about that, but it never really answers the question. You know, I I, I still can't answer today why the Civil War continues to rivet me, but it does. It's like a bug. It's one of our great, if not our greatest, uh, national story. And as we've been discussing, it's still tremendously relevant in all kinds of ways. You're reminding me of something you wrote near the end of your book, where you were reflecting on why the war still mattered so much and why it mattered to you. You wrote, while I felt almost no ideological kinship with these unreconstructed rebels, I'd come to recognize that in one sense they were right. The issues at stake in the Civil War, race in particular, remained raw and unresolved, as did the broad question the conflict posed. Would America remain one nation? You know, that may be the key to the riddle right there. I mean, we are in some ways not one nation. We continually talk about divides, whether it's north-south or red-blue or right-left. We're still grappling with kind of bifurcation in our very soul from one election to the next, right? Right. Thankfully, we're not uh, divided in in quite the same way we were at the start of the Civil War um, uh, over slavery and, you know, fault line right down the middle of the country that that we then spilled tremendous amounts of blood over. I I don't think we're uh, in the 1860s here, and, and, you know, we should never forget that as we turn on uh, Fox or MSNBC or anything else and hear a lot of shrieking and think, oh, my God, we're... You know, we're such a divided nation. We are, but we are also <laughs> managing to, to, to muddle along. Um, but certainly these fault lines remain. Well, thank you so much for your time. Great. Thank you. It's great. Tony Horowitz is the author of many books, including the one we were talking about there, Confederates in the Attic, and also another book on uh, the Civil War era called Midnight Rising, John Brown and the Raid that Sparked the Civil War. We had him on the show a few years ago talking about that one, and you can find that conversation in our archives at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week.